Welcome to the Investigation Guru, where real-life PIs Sean and Dana bring you to the darker side of true crime investigations. Stories so horrific, it's hard to believe they actually happened. But truth is often darker than fiction. Real life can sometimes involve lies, betrayal, abduction, and even torture and death. These stories will take you on a journey through some of the world's darkest and most notorious true crime investigations. The Investigation Guru starts now. Here's Sean and Dana. Hello and welcome to the Investigation Guru podcast. This is the official podcast for Red Door Investigations. My name is Sean and today we're going to be talking about Jody Arias. In the summer of 2008, Jodi Arias made national headlines after she was charged with murdering her 30-year-old ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander, who was working as a motivational speaker and insurance salesman. The shocking and horrifying brutality of the murder, committed by a female nonetheless, along with Arias' bizarre behavior when she was arrested, makes this one of the most unusual cases we've examined thus far. So, without further ado, here is the story of Jodi Arias. A little bit of background. Travis Victor Alexander was born on July 28, 1977 in Riverside, California to Gary David Alexander and Pamela Elizabeth Morgan Alexander. At the age of 11, Travis moved in with his paternal grandparents. After his father's death in July of 1997, his seven, yes, seven siblings were also taken in by their paternal grandmother. Travis was a salesman and motivational speaker for a company called Prepaid Legal Services. And this is basically one of those kind of, uh, they generally help, you know, a little bit more uh, economically disadvantaged families who are able to, uh, to prepay for some legal services if they should ever need them in the future. Uh, Jody Ann Arias was born on July 9th, 1980 in Salinas, California to William and Sandra Arias. She was the first of four children. She moved out at 17 years of age and moved in with her boyfriend before relocating to Southern California and then later to Arizona. Although Jody has given several mismatching accounts of her trials while growing up, her mother describes her childhood as pretty normal and otherwise happy. So she had kind of a just a normal, everyday, average average childhood. Uh, She attended the uh, Eureka Union High School but dropped out in the 11th grade. Uh, Jody worked a series of dead-end jobs before she got hired by company called Legal Shield, which is a company that uh, offers low-cost prepaid legal help to individuals, families, and businesses, much like prepaid legal, which is where Travis worked. And they actually met at a a conference for both of these companies. Jody worked a series of dead-end jobs before she got hired by Legal Shield, which is a company that offers low-cost prepaid legal services to individuals, families, and businesses. Jody and Travis met in September of 2006 at a prepaid legal conference in Las Vegas. So the company that, uh, that Travis was working for, prepaid legal, I guess, hosted kind of this uh, you know, legal prepaid business, whatever conference, and uh, the company that Jody was working for um, attended, and that's where they first met. Uh, Travis and Jody began dating in February of 2007, and Jody moved to Mesa, Arizona to be closer to Travis. In 2008, she moved back to Eureka, California, and lived there with her grandparents. Jody and Travis began a long distance relationship and dated on and off again for about a year and a half, give or take. Uh, they would uh, take turns traveling between their respective Arizona and California addresses. So uh, Jody lived in California. Travis lived in Arizona. It was the kind of the prototypical long distance relationship. You know, you come see me for a a little while and then next time I'll come see you. Travis's friends who knew Jody and observed them together tended to have a 
kind of a negative opinion of her, uh, stating that the relationship was unusually tumultuous and that Aries's behavior was worrying. So already pretty early on in the relationship, a lot of Travis's friends kind of noticed that Jody was probably not really the best fit for him. Um, apparently he, he kind of had a, a certain attraction to the edgier type of women. And Jody certainly, uh, certainly met that description. They had a very, very tumultuous, a very, very whirlwind type of romance. Um, Jody did describe that, you know, their sex life was, was very, very, um, passionate and very, very, uh, almost kind of raunchy. Uh, she would later go on to describe, you know, Travis's, uh, sexual preferences as being very, very unusual. Um, and even go so far as to accuse him of being a pedophile, which, uh, kind of never really panned out. It never really, there was no evidence to suggest that, um, that Travis had any kind of pedophilic types of tendencies. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the episode, but, uh, Jody and Travis had a very, very sexually charged, sexually fueled, very, very passionate relationship. Travis's friends, you know, they kind of started to notice a, a little bit of, of odd behaviors in Jody um, pretty early on. And they kind of presented this to Travis and kind of said, you know, are you sure you really want to date this type of girl, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, Travis said, oh, yeah, man, it's just uh, very, very, she's a lot of fun. And she's, uh, you know, the, the the sex is great. And uh that type of thing. But uh, his friends saw a lot of red flags and a lot of warning signs uh, pretty early on. And they, they remember making a point of this to Travis and kind of giving him a, a warning that this girl, you know, could turn out to be trouble later on. Uh, a few events that, that kind of led up to the murder, kind of, you know, how, how their lives started to kind of take a turn. Um, they, they continued to get back together and break up and get back together and break up. So it was not a, a real healthy <laughs> It, 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 was, it was not a healthy relationship at all. Um, uh, there was all kinds of, of accusations of uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence. Uh, they argued and fought all the time. So their, their relationship from start to finish was pretty much uh, the ideal prototypical version of, of an unhealthy, unstable uh, relationship. But Jody began to exhibit a, a whole lot of uh, types of obsessive behavior she would call him at, at all hours of the night and try you know wanting to know where he was and who he was with she accused him of cheating on her constantly uh so she was not uh, she was not the healthiest individual but their you know their relationship was really really rocky uh in early 2008 travis told friends that jody would join him for a week-long trip at uh, cancun mexico and that was scheduled for june 15th of that year so travis kind of planned this you know, trip to Cancun and uh, they were going to, you know, rekindle the sparks and all of that. In April of that year, uh, 2008, Travis uh, asked to change his travel companion to another female friend, uh, which probably went over just as well as you, as you think. Uh, they apparently had some kind of, uh, again, a, another fight uh, falling out and their fights were, were pretty legendary. And so Travis just kind of said, you know, screw this. I, I'm, you know, I've got the tickets bought. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to take someone else because I, I, I don't want to be around you at all. On, uh, on May 28th, a burglary occurred at the residence of Jody's grandparents with whom Aries was living. Among the missing items was a 25 caliber handgun, which was never recovered. So uh, Jody's grandparents, their house got robbed. A 25 caliber handgun was taken, and uh, which turns out to be the caliber of handgun that uh, that was used to murder 
uh, Travis. This is, uh, again, significant because a spent 25 caliber round was found near Travis's body at the crime scene. So it's thought that um, Travis was shot with a 25 caliber caliber handgun, which is the exact model handgun that, uh, that was stolen from Jody's grandparents' house. On June 2nd, between 1 and 3 a.m., Jody called Travis four times but did not appear to get in touch with him since the longest of these calls was only 17 seconds. After 3 a.m., Travis called Jody twice, the first time for 18 minutes and the second time for 41 minutes. At 4.03 a.m. of that day, Arias called Alexander back, and the call lasted 2 minutes, 48 seconds. Neither of these calls nor their transcripts were presented at Arias' trial, so we don't really know exactly what was said or the nature of these conversations, but it was probably something having to do with, you know, Jody either getting very, very angry or trying to get back with Travis, she, she vacillated between, you know, extreme bouts of anger and then um, kind of groveling and wanting to come back and, and, you know, say she's sorry and he would take her back. And it was this type of thing back and forth over and over and over and over again. At 5.39 a.m. Uh, that day, Jody set out to drive south to rent a car for a long trip to Utah, as shown by evidence of a gasoline purchase in Eureka. On June 2nd at 8.04 a.m., Arias rented a car in Redding, California, and indicated that she would return the car in Redding later that week. Uh, She then visited friends in Southern California on her way to Utah for a a prepaid legal work conference, another conference, and to meet with Ryan Burns, who was a co-worker of hers at uh, prepaid legal. Uh, By late evening on June 3rd, the day before Travis's murder, Jody apparently set out for Salt Lake City. Uh, Travis, uh, later that day, missed an important conference call on the evening of June 4th, which was the day of his death. The following day, Jody met up with Ryan Burns in the Salt Lake City suburb of West Jordan, Utah, and attended business meetings for the conference. Uh, Burns later said that he noticed Arias's formerly blonde hair was now dark brown, and she had cuts on her hands. So Jody had uh, changed her hair color, and that uh, she had some kind of... It, looked like maybe defensive wounds on her hands. Um, this was, uh, of course, very, very unusual because Jody had historically been completely blonde. Um, this, you know, this was enough for him to actually notice that she had changed her hair. On June 6th, uh, she left Salt Lake City and drove west towards California. Uh, she called Travis several times and left a dish, uh, several voicemail messages for him. This, this was, of course, after Travis had already been killed. Um, so this, you know, it's, it's highly possible that she made these calls to perhaps establish a cover story that she could use later on. Uh, kind of, you know, why would I try to call him if I knew he was dead type thing? Uh, she also accessed his cell phone's uh, voicemail system. Uh, when she returned the rental car on June 7th, it had been driven about 2,800 miles. Uh, the rental clerk testified that the car was missing its floor mats and had red stains on its front and rear seats. Uh, it could not be verified that the car had floor mats when Jody picked it up, and any stains could not be verified since the car was cleaned before the police could examine it. So we don't know if Jody kind of removed those floor mats in an effort to cover up any evidence that might be in there, or if there was simply just no floor mats on there when Arias took control of the car. Uh, but the red stains, that was that was very, very significant. But again, the the vehicle was cleaned prior to police having access to it in order to examine it for any kind of forensic evidence or the like. Uh, on June 9th, uh, having been unable to reach Travis, a concerned group of friends went to his home uh, to check on him. 
his roommates had not seen him for several days, but they believed that he was probably out of town and thus didn't think anything was amiss. Travis uh, traveled all the time. He was kind of trying to build this motivational speaker side gig business that, that he really wanted to get off the ground. He was trying to write a whole bunch of, of books and he really wanted to start uh, this a motivational speaker, life coach type thing. So Travis uh, traveled a whole lot. Um, he traveled a lot for his his regular job with prepaid legal. Uh, this 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 side gig that he was really trying to get off the ground required a whole bunch of travel. So just because they hadn't heard from him in a while and he wasn't at home, that really didn't throw up uh, really any red flags for them at that time. Um, after finding a key to Travis's master bedroom, Travis's friends entered. And they found large pools of blood in the hallway. So uh, they quickly came to the realization that Travis, you know, the reason they had not heard from him was because he was dead. Uh, they discovered his body in the shower and immediately called 911. Uh, in the 911 call, which again wasn't heard by the jury, uh, the dispatcher asked if Travis had been suicidal or if anyone was angry enough to hurt him. His friend specifically and immediately mentioned that Jody was probably a very good suspect, uh, stating that uh, Travis had said she was stalking him, accessing his Facebook account, slashing his car's tires. Uh, again, you know, all of the red flags that they had when Travis and Jody first started dating. Um, it, it was pretty obvious that, that you know, they thought that this is, this is the work of, of Jody Arias. Uh, the murder and evidence itself. Travis Alexander died brutally on June 4th, 2008 from almost 30 stab wounds, a slit throat, and a single fatal gunshot to his head. His body wasn't even discovered until June 10th. He was found slumped over in the shower. Medical examiner Kevin Horn, MD, testified that Travis's jugular vein, common carotid artery, and trachea had been slashed and that he had defensive wounds on his hands, indicating that he had tried to defend himself. Horn further testified that Travis may have already been dead at the time the gunshot was inflicted and that the back wounds were very, very shallow. His death was almost immediately ruled a homicide. You can't, you know, self-inflict that many stab wounds, a gunshot to the head, uh, defensive wounds like that. Uh, it, it's, it's a pretty cut and dry homicide. This, this was, there, were, there was no question whatsoever. Although initially denying that she had anything to do with Travis's murder, Incriminating evidence, such as a bloody handprint containing both Jody's and Travis's DNA, was found at the scene. So she had DNA present at the scene, uh, bloody handprint. It, it's it's you know the the it's not looking good for Jody. A camera was also found with photos of both of them together that day. Alexander standing in the shower, and even Travis's bloody body, which all again contradicted her story that she wasn't there. While searching his home, police found his recently purchased digital camera damaged in the washing machine. Police were able to recover deleted digital images showing Travis and Jody in sexually suggestive poses, taken at approximately 1.40 p.m. on June 4th. The final picture of Travis alive, showing him in the shower, was taken at 5.29 p.m. that same day. Photos taken moments later show an individual believed to be Travis profusely bleeding on the bathroom floor. A bloody palm print was discovered along the wall of the bathroom hallway. It contained DNA from both Travis and Jody. On July 9, 2008, Jody Aries was indicted by a grand jury in Maricopa County, Arizona, for the first-degree murder of Travis Alexander. She was arrested at her home six days later and extradited to Arizona on September 5th. Arias pleaded not guilty on September 11th. 
During this time, she gave several different accounts about her involvement in Travis's death. She originally told police that she had not been in Mesa on the day of the murder and then last seen Travis in March of 2008. She then changed her story and told police that two intruders had broken into Travis's home, murdering him and attacking her. Two years after her arrest, she changed her story yet again and finally told police that she killed Travis in self-defense, claiming that she had been a victim of domestic violence. She also claimed that he was a pedophile, but a search of his computer turned up nothing related to child pornography, so this was most likely a lie. After giving unusual and contradicting accounts of what actually transpired, Jody eventually confessed to killing Travis, although she claimed she did it in self-defense, suffering a history of domestic abuse. So again, you know, Jody is is constantly changing her story. She's saying one thing, she's saying she wasn't even there, and then evidence is presented that, you know, her DNA is found in this bloody handprint, and so she changes her story and changes her story and changes her story. Oh yeah, I, I was there. But, the, you know, there were these intruders and she's spinning all of these different tales. And then she finally comes clean. You know, she admits to killing him, but says that, oh, I was in self-defense. And he, uh, you know, he was he was attacking me. We had a, he had a history of, of, of you know, domestic abuse and he was a pedophile. None of this checked out. She was she was lying. Um, there, there was no history of, of any kind of domestic abuse from Travis to Jody. As, in, matter of fact, it was actually uh, usually the opposite and, you know, there was no evidence that he was ever a, a, a pedophile or anything like that. The, the police, you know, examined his computer and they, they didn't find any any evidence of, of any kind of, of child pornography or anything on his computer. All right. The actual trial itself. Uh, jury selection. Uh, the trial commenced in Maricopa County Superior Court before Judge Sherry K. Stevens. Initial jury selection began on December 10th, 2012. Uh, during jury selection on December 20th, Aries's defense attorneys argued that the prosecution was, quote, systematically excluding, end quote, women and African Americans. So he, her attorneys, you know, said that, you know, there were, there weren't enough women and in, in African Americans on the jury. Prosecutor Juan Martinez said that race and sex were irrelevant to his decisions to strike certain jurors. So he said that, you know, just because they were women or they were African American had no bearing whatsoever on his desire to, you know, either include them on the jury or remove them from from being potential jurors. Judge Stevens ruled that the prosecution had shown no bias in the jury selection and allowed the selection to continue. The guilt phase of the trial. On January 2nd, 2013, the prosecution put forward the death penalty. Jody was represented by court-appointed counsel L. Kirk Nurmi, N-U-R-M-I, and Jennifer Wilmot, who argued that Travis's death was a justifiable homicide committed in self-defense. The prosecution argued that since a 25 caliber round was found near Travis's body and that a gun of the same caliber was stolen from Jody's residence in Eureka the week before, she had staged the burglary and used the gun to kill Alexander. That gun was very, very damning evidence. Uh, Mr. Martinez, the prosecutor, claimed that Jody had stalked Travis and had slashed his tires at least twice. In addition, in the final days before his death, Travis had called her a sociopath and, quote, the worst thing that ever happened to me, end quote, and said that he was afraid of her. Aries took the stand in her own defense on February 4th, 2013, testifying for a whopping 18 days, a length of time that defense attorney Mark Garagos called unprecedented. 
On the first day of her testimony, Jody spun all of these weird, bizarre, conflicting tales of being violently abused by her parents, beginning when she was approximately seven years old. And as we've kind of discussed at the very beginning of the episode, her parents, you know, said that her childhood was completely normal, uh, happy even. So, you know, Jody has kind of this history of, of blaming others and shifting blame away from herself, you know, painting herself as the victim. Uh, she testified that she rented a car in Reading because Budget's website gave her two options, uh, one to the north and one to the south, and that her brother lived in Reading. And so, you know, she went down there to visit her brother for a little while, apparently, and just went ahead and rented the car there. Uh, on her second day on the stand, uh, she said that her sex life with Travis included oral and anal sex. She said that the anal sex was painful for her the first time they experienced it together, and that while she considered these forms of sex to be, quote, real sex, Travis did not, as they were kind of going against his Mormon rules concerning vaginal intercourse. Um, I'm not really well-versed on how Mormons view sex, but I'm sure that it's it's very, very almost puritanical. Um, that, you know, sex is something for conception, things like that. If, if any Mormons are listening uh, to the episode, please uh, let me know if I am wrong on that. But uh, anal sex is definitely one of those, you know, we, we've kind of discussed how their sex life was very, very tumultuous and very, very edgy and um, things like that. And this is this is one of those things. Uh, a phone sex tape was played in court in which Travis said he wanted to zip tie Arius to a tree and have anal sex with her while she was dressed as Little Red Riding Hood, which Arius seemed to respond to quite enthusiastically. So again, this is, you know, they're, they're, they're throwing in a little bit of role play and, and things like that to kind of, you know, amplify. Uh, Jody had recorded this conversation without Travis's knowledge or consent, apparently hoping to use it to embarrass Travis to his Mormon peers. So she was planning on, on essentially blackmailing him. Uh, she also testified that Travis had secretly found young boys and girls sexually attractive and that she tried to help him with these urges. Uh, forensic experts again testified that an examination of Travis's computer found no evidence of, of pornographic material of any kind. So this likely was probably just another story that Jody was using to paint Travis in a in a light that would add a lot of weight and credence to her um, self defense. Arias uh, further testified that her relationship with Alexander became increasingly physically and emotionally abusive. She said that Travis shook her while saying, "I'm fucking sick of you." end quote, then began screaming at me, after which he, quote, body slammed me on the floor at the foot of his bed, end quote, and taunted her, saying, quote, don't act like that hurts, before he called her a bitch, and then kicked her in the ribs. Afterward, Jody said, quote, he went to kick me again, and I put my hand out, end quote. Arias held up her left hand in the courtroom, showing that her ring finger was crooked, now, whether or not this is a result of that altercation or not is anybody's guess. Um, the jury didn't really seem to buy it. Uh, I'm kind of of that opinion as well. I think Jody would spin, you know, all kinds of different tales. Uh, even in, you know, in the interrogation when she was first arrested, she was uh, behaving very, very bizarrely and erratically. Uh, you know, she started singing in the in the interrogation room when she was left alone, and she would sit in the chair really, really weird and kind of put her legs up up on the wall with her feet pointed towards the ceiling. Um, there's there's all kinds of, of videos out there, you know, showing this type of behavior. So she almost didn't really comprehend the full weight uh, of what was happening to her and, and what was going on. So Arius jo Jody kind of really had had a lot of a lot of issues going on. 
according to Jody, uh, the dysfunction in the relationship reached its climax when she killed him in self-defense. After he became enraged when she dropped his camera, forcing her to fight for her life. So she said that, you know, she was taking pictures of, of them together, um, pictures of Travis, and she accidentally dropped the camera. And that's when he became enraged, came at her. She feared for her life and she shot him. This was actually the third differing account of Travis's death given by Jody, uh, which both prosecutors, courtroom observers, and later jurors felt severely damaged her credibility. She kept changing her story over and over again. She wouldn't stick to one outcome, to one narrative. And that is just, that is the kiss of death. If you keep changing your story, especially on trial in front of jurors, they're going to notice that. And that just damages your credibility and, and everything you say can be painted with that brush. And, uh, once you, you know, once you're caught lying about one thing, then everything else that you said, even though it may or may not be true, can be, can be painted with that brush and nothing you say is, is, is believed or, you know, at least everything that you say can be, um, interpreted as being potentially not true. Uh, Travis's other previous girlfriends actually testified that he never exhibited any problems with anger or violence towards them. So again, Travis did not have any kind of history of, you know, violence or anger outbursts or all of these things that Jody was, was kind of spinning to again, paint herself as a victim. Um, none of that was, was exhibited by Travis with any of his previous uh, relationships. All of his friends said that you know, Travis was usually very, very uh, passive and, and almost kind of quiet. Uh, starting on March 14th, during the trial, uh, psychologist Richard Samuels testified for the defense for nearly six days. He said Jody was likely suffering from acute stress at the time of the murder, sending her body into a sort of fight or flight mode to defend herself, which caused her brain to stop retaining memory. That's actually a, a real thing. Um, people who are you know, under severe trauma can sort of black out and lose time. Uh, this severe fight or flight reaction is is pure survival instinct and so sometimes your brain can kind of shut down and not really record the events that transpired uh samuels also diagnosed uh, jody arias with uh, ptsd uh, following the ordeal of of all of this um whether or not whether or not you know ptsd can be faked of course um i'm not saying that jody did fake it uh she might have felt that she was traumatized she might have actually even believed that she was a victim um, but, uh, the fact that the, you know, these types of behaviors in her, her bizarre behavior when she was arrested, when she was interrogated, all of the, the, you know, stalking and the, all, all of these things go to painting Jody as a very manipulative type of person, whether or not she actually had PTSD or whether she was faking it, that, that's, uh, that's really, I don't know. Uh, beginning on March 26th, Alice LaViolette a psychotherapist who specializes in domestic violence testified that Jody was a victim of domestic abuse and that most victims do not tell anyone about abuse because they feel ashamed and humiliated. Well, that's not what, you know, Jody continued to, you know, assert that she had been abused. She even uh, eventually confessed to murdering Travis as, as a result of this abuse, um, which of course, you know, may or may not have been true. Uh, she lied about so much other stuff that it, again, it's hard to, it's hard to believe much of what she says at all. Uh, clinical psychologist, uh, Janine DeMarte then testified for the prosecution stating that she had found no evidence that Travis had abused Jody and no evidence of PTSD or amnesia in Arias. 
so all of these these psychologists and psychotherapists that were testifying that you know she had been she'd been abused, she suffered PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. These were all witnesses for the defense. So they they were being paid by the defense team, and uh, that you know may or may not have influenced you know their testimony. We don't know, but you know for every every time you find someone who can tell you one thing, you can always find someone who will refute that. Furthermore, Jody's claim of total memory loss for long stretches of time was inconsistent with traumatic amnesia associated with PTSD, which manifests as much shorter gaps in memory. So Jody claimed that you know she had blackouts for for very very long stretches of of, of time, and this again you know is not really in line with how these types of things work. These memory gaps, these blackouts that are associated with severe trauma and PTSD, uh, they tend to be much shorter in duration. And so, although they they do happen. Um, the psychologist who testified on behalf of the prosecution felt that it did not, it did not match up with what they thought would be a, uh, a usual type of reaction to these types of situations. Instead, DeMarte said the Arias suffered from borderline personality disorder, uh, showing signs of immaturity and an unstable sense of identity. This certainly, uh, she just, she's one of those people who just screams borderline personality disorder, the lack of ability to be alone, the the obsessive phone calls at four o'clock in the morning, not wanting to feel, you know, abandoned, um, blowing everything way out of proportion, exaggerated types of, of claims and things like that. This is all very, very indicative of borderline personality disorder. Um, so yeah, that that's that's a very, very good good diagnosis. People who suffer from a, such a disorder have, quote, a terrifying feeling of being abandoned by others. Uh, DeMarte uh, told jurors, which of course is, you know, one of the hallmark diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder, a tense, almost phobia of being abandoned. And she took every single little thing that, that Travis did or did not do as a, as a means or uh, some kind of evidence that he didn't love her or that he wasn't committed to her, et cetera. And she just hounded him over and over and over. It was constant. That's very, very common in people with uh, borderline personality disorder. The final defense witness was psychologist Robert Geffner, who said that uh, DeMarte's borderline diagnosis was really not appropriate and that all tests taken by Arias uh, since her arrest pointed more towards an anxiety disorder stemming from her trauma. Uh, He also said that the test indicated that she answered questions honestly without lying. So again, this was another defense witness uh, who's going to refute everything that the prosecution witnesses are going to say. Um, mainly because they are the ones who are paying him. And so, you know, you can you can argue on either side of a whole lot of issues and you can take one thing and, uh, you know, art play devil's advocate and punch holes in every little thing, but that still doesn't make it correct or even applicable to the current situation. Uh, on April 24th, in response to previous testimony given by Jody about buying a five-gallon gas can from Walmart in Salinas on June 3rd, 2008, that she returned the same day the prosecution called Amanda Webb, an employee from the only Walmart in Salinas, to the stand. Webb testified that, according to Walmart's records, no one returned a five-gallon gas can on that date and that Jody returned the gas can a week later rather than on June 3rd. The gas can evidence was seen as important in establishing premeditation as the prosecution argued that Arias was trying to avoid being recorded on gas station security cameras on her way to Mesa. So she bought this big gas can so she could fill it up in Salinas where she lived and she wouldn't be caught on camera 
getting gas on her way to Mesa, Arizona, which is where Travis lived. And that can give her a possible alibi. So she filled up her car with all these gas cans so she wouldn't need to stop. In closing arguments on May 4th, Aries' defense argued that premeditation theory did not really make sense. Uh, they said, quote, what happened in that moment in time? The relationship, the relationship of chaos that ended in chaos as well. Uh, there is nothing about what happened on June 4th in that bathroom that looks planned. Uh, couldn't it also be that after everything they went through in that relationship that she simply snapped? Ultimately, if Miss Aries is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. End quote. Uh, in rebuttal, Martinez uh, described, Martinez, the prosecutor, described the extent and variety of Travis's wounds. He said, quote, There is no evidence that he ever laid a hand on her, ever, not once. Nothing indicates that this is anything less than a slaughter. There is no way to appease this woman who just would not leave him alone. End quote. On May 7, 2013, after 15 hours of deliberation, Jody Arias was found guilty of first-degree murder. Out of the 12 jurors present, five found her guilty of first-degree premeditated murder, and seven jurors found her guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and felony murder. As the guilty verdict was read, Travis's family smiled and hugged each other. People outside the courtroom began cheering and chanting. You know how these public things go. Uh, the aggravation phase of the trial. Following the conviction, the prosecution was required to convince the jury that the murder was, quote, cruel, heinous, or depraved, end quote, in order for them to determine that Arias was eligible for the death penalty. The aggravation phase of the trial started on May 15, 2013. The only witness was the medical examiner who performed the autopsy. Arias' attorneys, who had repeatedly asked to step down from the case, gave only brief statements and closing arguments in which they said the adrenaline rushing through Travis's body may have prevented him from feeling much pain during his death. The prosecution showed photos of the corpse and crime scene to the jury, then paused for two minutes in silence to illustrate how long he said it took for Alexander to die at Arias' hands. Very dramatic. After three hours of deliberation, the jury determined that Jody was eligible for the death penalty. Now comes the penalty phase of the trial. On May 21st, Jody Arias was offered an allocution during which she pleaded for a life sentence. She acknowledged that her plea for life was a reversal of remarks she made to a television reporter shortly after her conviction when she said she preferred the death penalty. So Jody actually, at one point, she, she sought the death penalty. She, she wanted them to kill her. She said, quote, each time I said that, I meant it, but I lacked perspective. Until very recently, I could not imagine standing before you and asking you to give me life, end quote. She said that she, she changed her mind to avoid bringing more pain to members of her family who were in the courtroom. So she went to wanting the death penalty to now wanting life in prison. She'd already been found guilty. Uh, the death penalty was obviously an option, but uh, in order to, she said, in order to spare her family the pain of her death, she wanted them to spare her life. At one point, she held up a white t-shirt with the word survivor written across it, telling the jurors that she would sell the clothing and donate all the proceeds to victims of domestic abuse. Again, she's trying to play this domestic abuse card and gain some form of sympathy. She also said that she would donate her hair to Locks of Love while in prison and had already done so three times while she was in jail. I don't know. Uh, that evening, Arias said uh, that she did not know whether the jury would come back with life or death. 
She said, quote, whatever they come back with, I will have to deal with it. I will have no other choice, end quote. Well, you got that right. Uh, regarding the verdict, she said, quote, I felt like a huge sense of unreality. I felt betrayed, actually, by the jury. I was hoping they would see things for what they are. I felt really awful for my family for what they were thinking, end quote. So again, you know, what they were thinking about her is how you should probably hear that. Uh, she didn't want to be thought of as a bad person, even though she, you know, at this point she was a convicted murderer. Uh, on May 23rd, the sentencing fate of Arias' trial resulted in a hung jury, prompting the judge to declare a mistrial for that phase only. So her guilty verdict would stand, but uh, a mistrial for the penalty phase, so that would have to be repeated. Uh, the jury had reached an 8-4 to four decision in favor of the death penalty. Um, of course, a death penalty has to be unanimous. After the jury was discharged, the jury foreman stated that the jury found the responsibility of weighing the death sentence overwhelming, but were horrified when their efforts ended in, in a mistrial. He said, quote, by the end of it, we were mentally and emotionally exhausted. I think we were horrified when we found out that they had actually called a mistrial and we felt like we had failed, end quote. The case went through several appeals and declaration of mistrials. Prosecutorial misconduct was alleged against the lead prosecutor, Juan Martinez, stating that he had yelled at witnesses, attacked witnesses on a personal level, and thrown evidence. Uh, the accusations also alleged that Martinez chose to release evidence and to pose for pictures with his fans on the steps of the courthouse. The defense attorneys claimed that Jody was in a position in which she could not present a complete defense and that the only constitutional recourse of action was to declare yet another mistrial. Uh, Jody received death threats and stated that she was no longer willing to testify because of the threats. Uh, the motion, of course, was denied, as was a motion for a stay in the proceedings that had been sought to give time to appeal the decisions of the Arizona Supreme Court. On May 29, 2012, the Arizona Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal filed three months earlier, also refused by the mid-level Arizona Court of Appeals based on the previously described misconduct of the prosecution. So the Supreme Court of Arizona said that they did not have sufficient evidence for prosecutorial misconduct and that all of this showboating and shenanigans had no weight, no bearing, and no legal recourse. Uh, the sentencing phase, after a trial that lasted almost six years, six years, yes, six years, Jody was convicted of first-degree murder in 2013 after two juries had initially failed to reach a unanimous decision on whether the death penalty should be given. Sentencing was scheduled for April 7, 2015, with the judge having the option to sentence Arias either life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or with the possibility of parole after 25 years. The death penalty option was, again, again deadlocked by a jury 11 to 1. So they had one holdout, Death penalty have to be you know, unanimous. So the judge was only allowed to sentence her to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or with the possibility of parole after 25 years. On April 13th, Judge Stevens sentenced Jody Arias to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. In June of 2015, Jody was ordered to pay more than $32,000 to Travis's siblings. Her attorney stated that this was about one-third of the amount requested. So I guess it looks like they may probably sued her in civil court for damages. Um, as of 2016, uh, Jody is housed at the Arizona Department of Corrections. 
Uh, her inmate number is 281129. The Arizona Department of Corrections is located at the Arizona State Prison Complex at Perryville. She started her sentence in the complex's maximum security Lumley unit, but she has the possibility of being possibly downgraded to the medium security level depending on her behavior while there. Travis himself is uh, buried at Riverside, California's Olivewood Memorial Park Cemetery. And that is the story of Jody Arias. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Uh, I wanted to apologize for, you know, we've kind of been off the air for a little while. Things have just been very, very busy here at the at the agency. And uh, it's just hard to kind of sit down and record these and edit these and get them researched and everything. But I, I will try to do much better. Uh, I will not go another year without posting a video. So thank you for sticking around. Thank you for listening to this, and uh, I wish you guys all the best. All right. Bye-bye. This has been The Investigation Guru, hosted by Sean and Dana, a presentation of Red Door Investigations in the DFW Metroplex of Texas, specializing in infidelity, fraud, child custody, missing persons, and more. Check out our website, at reddoorinvestigations.com or on social media at Red Door PI. For more fascinating deep dives into real true crime, subscribe to the show today. Many elements of an investigation have to remain secret, but not this podcast. Our best advertising has always been word of mouth, so please share the feed with a friend today. And if you'd like to support the show, we offer some goodies on our Patreon at patreon.com slash invgurupod. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.